I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. Are we entering a new era in psychedelic treatments? And if so, why has it taken doctors so long to get on board? Dr. Anthony Bossus at NYU is a lead researcher working with psilocybin. These medicines were placed outside the hands of research and of the public. And for 30 years or so, there was no research, which was quite remarkable. It was the first time ever and since that a therapeutic compound with promising benefits was taken out of the hand of a healthcare because of a social cultural backlash. And then, one woman's first hand account of her psilocybin treatment. It was amazing. It changed my life. I'm still an atheist. If I'd had a sliver of belief in my body, I think I would have come out of that believing in something. The rich history and promising future of psychedelic therapy, all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. The story we often hear about psychedelics is that they were introduced during the 60s and 70s, drugs like LSD and magic mushrooms. But a new provocative yet deeply researched book by Brian Moorescu makes the argument that some form of hallucinatory drugs date all the way back to ancient Greek culture and even early Christianity. The illusion mysteries, based on the Greek myths of Demeter and Persephone, involved the ritual ingestion of kukion, a beverage that had mind-altering capabilities way beyond the powers of alcohol. Many of the great thinkers of the era, like Plato, wrote that they were transformed by their visits to Eleusis. So did they discover the meaning of life through the use of psychedelic substances? Brian Mooresco, author of The Immortality Key, has spent the last 12 years traveling and talking to archaeologists, academics, priests, and farmers about the use of psychedelics and ancient ecstatic experiences. And I should mention that Brian acknowledges that there are many indigenous and shamanic cultures that have used psychedelics for thousands of years, and in no way does this book suggest the Greeks started this tradition. Instead, the book focuses on how it appears in early Western civilizations. Well, Brian Moorescu, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Tell me about your interest in this topic, because what I've gathered reading just a little bit about you and the research, this is something that um, was a very, very lengthy process for you to get this book researched and then finally, you know, on the publishing table. Yeah, this represents pretty much the past 12 years of my life. It's it's an entire book about the history of psychedelics from a guy who's never done psychedelics. Mm. Uh, the reason being because I think there's a very big conversation here, but I've always been fascinated by the ancient past, uh, mainly because of a relatively useless major in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit <laughs> at Brown University, uh, which always stayed with me. Uh, I became a lawyer, and I've been practicing law for the past 15 years, but this was the kind of thing that I would dig into on nights and weekends, trying to crack what Houston Smith, one of the greatest religious scholars of the 20th century, once referred to as the best kept secret in history. I mean, how can you put that down? I, I want to start this conversation uh, in Greece and to go back to a really important site, uh, Eleusis, which you talk about a lot in this book. Why, why is that such a focal point in understanding the role of psychedelics in antiquity? Uh, because it was a focal point for, for the Greeks. Uh, so I, I say that Eleusis was like the fight club of the ancient world. The, the first rule of Eleusis was that you don't talk about Eleusis, these mysteries of Eleusis, which survive from about 1500 BC to the 4th century AD. This is genuine religion for the ancient Greeks, the best and brightest among them, like Plato, Pindar, Sophocles, and then even after the Greeks, the Romans, like Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, they all made this mysterious pilgrimage 13 miles northwest from Athens to Eleusis, which today is this small town, Eleusina, but in antiquity, it was the spiritual capital of the ancient world. These initiates, uh, they, they would show up, drink a potion, have this vision of a goddess, and from what little testimony survived, you know, through that veil of secrecy, they all claim to have become immortal, to have life after death guaranteed to them. Uh, and we know relatively little about it, but we do know there's this potion there. And in 1978, this trio of renegades claimed that that potion must have been spiked with psychedelics, which, as you can imagine, was a pretty terrible idea to unleash on, uh, on the world in the midst of the war on drugs. Right. Well, from your research, what do you think that potion was? I mean, do we have any research into what might have actually been in that concoction? 
We have some data, and this is what the authors in 1978 relied on. So we're talking about R. Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffmann, who the Swiss chemist who actually discovered LSD, and Carl Ruck, whom I follow in the book, Harvard and Yale educated. At the time, he was the chair of the classics department at Boston University. He's now the only surviving member of that trio. He's 85 years old, still teaching at Boston University. Uh, what they claimed is that the hymn to Demeter was one of these clues where you could tease out some specifics. So the hymn to Demeter survives from the seventh century BC. It's not discovered until 1777, but in this 496 line poem in the Greek, uh, there is an interesting list of ingredients as to what this kukion, mm. which is the word they use, this potion. And inside that kukion, uh, the poem says that there was barley, water, and mint. And Albert Hoffman took a look at that barley and he said, that must be a code word. Uh, it wasn't really barley, but what grows on the barley, namely ergot. Uh, ergot is this natural fungus that affects cereal grains. And it's the exact thing from which Albert Hoffman himself was able to synthesize LSD in 1938. So is it possible, I mean, looking at that type of evidence, that it gives us a, a kind of a more substantial body of research to think that in a place like Eleusis, that there might have been that kind of psychoactive compound? That, that's exactly what, what, what I went to Greece to find out. Uh, so I, I can't believe that in all these years, no one had taken a flight to, to Athens and then uh, trekked up that sacred road like the ancient pilgrims to Eleusis to ask the excavator there if they could test her vessels. Mm. And so I did exactly that in 2018. Uh, and I show up to the archaeological site and we have a long, uh, beautiful conversation uh, with with the director there, Papi Papangeli. Uh, she's been on site for decades and knows every inch of the site. And uh, an hour into it, I finally asked her, hey, you know about this archaeochemistry? Uh, I wonder, has anyone ever approached you to test these vessels? And she said she's interested in doing it. However, uh, the vessels that, that she has on display in the museum and in storage have all been um, compromised because for conservation purposes, they've been treated, chemically treated. Uh, so there's no longer any active organic compounds in there that, that, that we know of. So it, it forced me uh, to look elsewhere. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, do you feel like you got some more clarity on the on the question? So ultimately, it led me to Spain, of all places, which is the last place I expected to find evidence. But, you know, after talking to her, I had to take a giant step back and think about the ancient world. You know, the, the when you think about ancient Greece, it wasn't just mainland Greece. Right. The Greek influence was all over the ancient world. Mm -hmm. And turns out 20 years ago, there was a paper published uh, in Catalan, which is part of the reason that no one has ever heard of it. Uh, but there's a site there swimming with the influence of the same Greek mysteries that you would find at Eleusis. And it's dated to about the same time, about 200 BC, so just after the classical period. And in there, they found this ritual chapel where they think some kind of Greek mysteries were being celebrated. And inside this chapel, a little over 20 years ago, they found this tiny chalice, like a couple inches high. It looks like an ancient shot glass. And it was, it was tested uh, under scanning electron microscope and optical microscopy, and they wound up finding the residue of beer, mm. not just beer, beer that was spiked with ergot. Hmm. So how does this all add up for you in terms of the story it tells about uh, maybe some of these early mystical experiences? I think what this is, is, is really compelling data to begin exploring uh, what religion meant to the ancient Greeks in general. The, the evidence suggests that the ancient Greeks very much found answers to the meaning of life, and Eleusis was part of that. You know, Aristotle himself says that the initiates went to Eleusis not to learn anything, but to experience something, pathein in, in Greek. They went there to have a vision, something very profound that transformed their lives. Yeah, well, you were uh, a useless uh, classics major. I was a philosophy major and studied a lot of Plato. And, um, and one of the great themes that came out of that is the immortality of the soul. Um, and that, you know, wh who we are transcends the physical body. And what I gather from, from what you're saying here and just the title of your book, which is that perhaps something in these compounds uh, mixed with an initiation experience created that, that type of insight into the human condition. Is that right? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's such, such a good point. And we think about philosophy as inherited from the ancient Greeks as this witty repartee and intellectual learning and books. Uh, 
to the Greeks, it wasn't so much about that. I mean, even Plato, when he talks about it in the Phaedo, he says those with those who engage with philosophy in the right way are doing nothing else but dying and being dead. And in, on the very first page of my book, I have this quote in Greek, an pethanis prin pethanis denta pethanis otan pethanis. It comes from the Mount Athos Monastery in Greece. And it means if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Mm. And I think in the, in the Greek Orthodox tradition, they are in fact talking about something that was retained from the ancient world. The philosophers were obsessed with death, with confronting it, and finding the very roots of existence. There's some really provocative writing in your book, too, about how this began to perhaps work its way into Christianity, which kind of moves through the the Greek line of thought, or at least we think of Greece as kind of the seat of, of Western civilization. So how does this story continue uh, for you? It goes right into Christianity, into the heart of Christianity, and I call it paleo-Christianity, those first three centuries after Jesus, where, remember, Christianity is illegal, right? Mm. It's not decriminalized until Constantine in the fourth century AD. So what is going on in that time period? Uh, I've been saying that I think it's impossible to understand Christianity without understanding the world into which it was born, and it was a Greek world, right? The New Testament is written in Greek, not Hebrew. Uh, Paul is writing letters to Greek speakers, like the Corinthians, for example. Now, Corinth is only today one hour west of Eleusis, this, this famous spiritual capital we've been talking about. The odds of the Corinthians not knowing about Eleusis, may, maybe you know, even having relatives who themselves were initiated, is, is very little. Of course they would have known about it. And so I, I look at the New Testament and I look at the Gospel of John, and I rely on very mainstream biblical scholarship to tease out the Greek to figure out what was going on and why this audience was being addressed. I think John's Gospel in particular set out to present Jesus almost as a second coming of Dionysus. You know, the, the Greeks had their own wine god. The, the Greeks had their own son of God, born of a virgin, who introduces wine into his mysteries. And the very first line of Euripides the Bacchae, from 405 BC, four centuries before Jesus, Dionysus is described as the son of God, Pais Dios. And there are so many parallels that, that I track through the Gospels, like the famous water to wine miracle. Uh, you know, uh, Greek scholars refer to that as the signature miracle of Dionysus. We have many stories from antiquity about water miraculously turning into wine. And so John is writing to Greek speakers who would have understood that the wine of Jesus was meant to be something extraordinary. I mean, it is nothing less than an immortality potion. Right, and I, and I know this is probably where some people will want to push back on some of your work, which is that you say that perhaps um, the wine that was used, say, in, in early uh, communion ceremonies uh, might have been spiked with something, right? Yes, and uh, you know, I, I, I look at the evidence to, to show that. So I look at Dioscorides, for example. And Dioscorides is the father of drugs. If, if you've ever gone to the pharmacy and gotten a prescription, you can thank Dioscorides for that. And his Materia Medica, which is written at the exact same time that the Gospels themselves are being written in the first century AD. Now, in one of his books alone, book five, Dioscorides writes in Greek about 56 separate wine formulas, spiking wine with different plants and herbs, like salvia or hellebore or frankincense or the very visionary psychedelic henbane or mandrake. In fact, he even calls black nightshade wine a psychedelic. In Greek, he says it produces fantasias u aedais, not unpleasant visions. So at least from the literature, it's pretty darn clear that the Greeks knew about pharmacology and specifically uh, how to spike wine with visionary plants and herbs. Right. How, how did this go over when you were researching, for example, these topics at a place like the Vatican or talking to Christian <laughs> scholars where they like, get out of here, you're, you're way off base? What do they tell you? This is going to sound weird, uh, but quite the opposite. 
the the Vatican could not have been more welcoming or more accommodating. Uh, you know, I I I talked to several different uh, officials at the secret archives. I was talking to the librarians at the archive of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. I looked into Inquisition documents. I went into these catacombs. Uh, and I talked to many, many priests in the Vatican. Uh, there's a priest who accompanies me on this journey, and he's included in the book. Uh, I talked to lots of Greek Orthodox priests. Uh, I'm not claiming that Christianity is a psychedelic religion. I want to be very careful about that. I'm not claiming anything about the Last Supper. I think it's unknowable. I mean, to talk about that, you're talking about the Holy Grail. Uh, we all want to know what was in that chalice at the Last Supper, one of the most uh, monumental events in the history of Western civilization. What I'm looking for is how some of the early Christian communities would have interpreted that story. You know, just like today, you can look around and see 33,000 denominations of Christianity. I think it was very much the same in the ancient past. There was never one uh, coherent agreement over who this Jesus was, what the mission was about, and I would argue what that Eucharist should be. Mm -hmm. You know, as you're talking, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm curious how you would respond to this. I mean, if I said, you know, are you making an argument that perhaps the root of Western spiritual thought comes from a psychedelic experience? Would I be off base in saying that? Only slightly. I would say that the psychedelic visionary experiences may have in fact been part of the larger toolkit that was available to our ancient ancestors. Uh, and that toolkit all would have been geared towards this practice of death uh, mm. that, that you know all about and that we've been talking about um, and preparing for death, both within the mystery traditions and many, many other traditions that the Greeks and I think the early Christians were practicing. Uh, they were much closer to their dead ancestors. And I think the veil between life and death was a lot thinner for them. Now, drugs are one way to break through that veil, but only one way. Uh, the Romanian scholar uh, Eliadi talks about these archaic techniques of ecstasy. Uh, there was this Greek um, a practice of incubation, which is essentially just laying, laying down dead for several days at a time until the vision arises at the temple or these deeply meditative or trance states. Uh, I think that these, these were practiced, these were available in antiquity. And it seems to me, and part of the reason I wrote the book is that these new uh, experiences with psilocybin represent a very powerful tool uh, for achieving the same kind of mystical experience that seems to have been more available in antiquity. But you would also believe that a mystical experience is available to someone without the use of drugs. 100% as it has been throughout time. I mean, religions themselves are born on visionary experiences. Uh, Moses and the burning bush, Paul on the road to Damascus, the prophet Muhammad and his visitations with the angel Gabriel. Uh, I don't think they were drug-induced experiences. Now, those who come after these prophets, I think, I think there was a tendency, and I'm, I can at least speak about the early Christian world, I think there would have been a tendency to try and capture some of that ecstasy, mm. uh, to try and capture some of those revelatory moments. Now, the world has been filled with natural-born visionaries and saints and mystics across time. What we have here now, however, in this psilocybin, and I don't think it's there yet, it's obviously illegal, but in 10 years' time, I can envision that kind of biotechnology in a once-in-a-lifetime experience under clinically controlled settings, perhaps provoking the kind of experience that these volunteers are talking about, that 75% of which claim is the most meaningful of their life. Right. I just think it's such an interesting conversation because still, I think there is this notion that if you get to an ecstatic experience through the use of drugs, it's not considered to be necessarily as authentic as those who can get there through another means, through meditation, through through breathing, through something else. But I wonder if what I'm hearing is that maybe this conversation may shift. Maybe there is quite a bit of value to that experience, even if it's chemically induced. I think it is. And I think the early scholars were talking about this. I don't think any of this is mutually exclusive. I'm not right. saying drugs are the answer. I'm not even saying drugs are an answer. Psychedelics are not for everybody. And that's, it's, it's pretty darn clear. Uh, I haven't done it myself. And, and I, have, I have some trepidation mm -hmm. around it. 
I think it's part of this spiritual toolkit. And you know, the, again, the reason I got interested is because of testimony from the likes of Houston Smith, yeah. that great religious scholar I mentioned. I mean, he himself tried mescaline. He tried psilocybin in the famous Harvard Psilocybin Project in 1962. He called it the greatest cosmic homecoming he'd ever experienced. And you know, I read a lot of Aldous Huxley and Alan Watts. Sure. According to them, uh, it, it was pretty difficult to distinguish a natural uh, mystical experience, whatever that means, from one that was facilitated by, by drugs. And this is coming from these gentlemen scholars in the mid-20th century. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the distinguishing characteristic, though, might be that one can return to that state without the use of a chemical compound versus having to rely on it to get there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got to ask, are you are you tempted to to explore the world of, of psychedelics after 12 years of research? So here's my diplomatic answer. Uh, I, I am I'm obsessed with psychedelics. And of course, I'm interested in the experience. I th in my case, I think I'm about 10 years off. Uh, I look forward to a time when there are these regulated, licensed retreat centers. You know, the FDA is getting involved in this clinical research. And pretty soon, I would say in five years, you're going to see psilocybin, at least, for example, approved for certain specified conditions, whether it's anxiety, depression, end of life distress. My big question at the end of this book, and it's my question alone, separate from the researchers, uh, is what happens in 10 years time? Mm. Does this kind of technology become available uh, for all of us, or at least those who've gone through some kind of emotional and psychological preparation, like the ancient mysteries. I mean, in my own case, I would envision spending a couple years preparing for this experience, a couple years integrating it, and then going through some kind of psychedelic chaplaincy. And I mean, I mean that seriously, um, whether it's a priest or a pastor uh, there to, to guide me through the process. I think, I think that could really inflame the imagination of those who are religious, but also those who have no religion. I, I really do think that this could be available for everybody. Yeah, I think you hit on something huge there, which is that, you know, what I got from your book as well is that in a place like Eleusis, or if you look at the way that psychedelics are used, say, in a shamanic tradition or in a Native American tradition, they aren't just people experimenting because they're feeling bored and want to go have a fun afternoon. They're done with very specific controls in that with the set and setting are crucial. Uh, the way that they are, the rituals performed are key in the process. And I feel like actually a lot of your research is saying these things need to be taken seriously. They're not to just be kind of used willy nilly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, not only taken seriously, uh, but really carefully thought about and and I write so much about history in the book only to show you and, and to question, you know, if this psychedelic hypothesis is true, whether for the ancient Greeks or the early Christians or otherwise, if this is all true, what you find in the ancient mysteries are carefully programmed protocols for taking mortals and turning them into immortals. I've been speaking with Brian Murarescu. He's the author of The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Thank you so much for this interesting conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Still to come, it changed my life. That's how our next guest describes her transformative experience taking psilocybin. We'll also talk with the NYU psychiatrist who worked with her and why the research holds so much promise. But before we get to that, we're getting close to wrapping up our Power in Numbers Fall membership drive. And if you've been enjoying shows like Life Examined, we're counting on you to keep us on air. Life Examined started during the pandemic, when a lot of us have been searching for meaning during this confusing time. So we brought you shows exploring the power of solitude, ritual, breath, and the latest neuroscience and genetic research. But the pandemic has also brought new financial challenges to KCRW, which means we need your help now more than ever. Please go to kcrw.com give or 1-800-600-KCRW to support programs like this one. Thank you so much. We'll be back after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Brian Moore Rescue explain how the ancient Greeks, Romans, and early Christians could have been influenced by the use of psychotropic substances. Many of these early experiences appear to be mystical and aimed towards spiritual growth. Fast forward to 2020, and psychedelics are re-emerging, but in new clinical settings to treat an array of mental disorders. Psychiatrist Anthony Bossus at NYU is a leading researcher. He's using psilocybin as a treatment for depression, addiction, and in palliative care, where a single treatment can have an overwhelming impact on patients. We'll hear from him in just a moment. And later, we'll be joined by Dinah Baser, who is a patient of Dr. Bossus and underwent a psilocybin treatment. She'll describe what it actually feels like to be in an altered state of consciousness in a controlled setting. Well, Dr. Anthony Bossus, welcome to Life Examined. Pleasure to be here, Jonathan. Well, why are you personally interested in working with psychedelics at the clinical level? What, what kind of brought you into this field of work? One of the main reasons for, for my interest is my um, involvement in palliative care, which many of your listeners know is the treatment of people with uh, potentially life-threatening illness. Um, and going back to the 1950s and 60s, there was a robust body of research looking at these medicines, psychedelics, um, and treating people with end-of-life distress. So my interest in palliative care and also comparative religion and spirituality, this really seemed right at my wheelhouse in terms of its applications for both. And, uh, and that, you know, that led me to the work with uh, our studies with psilocybin and end-of-life care. So mainly it's my interest around end-of-life care, uh, existential distress, and also uh, at the core of, of the major, um, our major traditions. Yeah. I, I feel like right now we're beginning to hear a lot about this research with psilocybin or, or other drugs, but I, I wonder if you could quickly encapsulate the history of this type of research and, and perhaps why we're hearing about it so much now. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that question because that's often not understood in terms of the history, and it's it's quite important. We're seeing a, a large um, amount of literature now in media on the topic, but it's important for people to know this goes back quite a ways um, in two regards. One, in terms of the research, it goes back to the 1950s um, and 1960s where uh, LSD and, and psilocybin and related compounds were used to treat the two primary indications out of that era were both end-of-life distress and also alcoholism. And these drugs were legal back then, um, and they were used in contemporary psychoanalysis back then, and people like Cary Grant spoke uh, how it changed him and saved him in many ways, and the research was well-regarded and well-respected at, at universities. Um, and uh, before that, the experience itself is what we call the mystical experience or peak experience. And it, they discover that this, these medicines can reliably, in the right set and setting, and we'll come back to what that is, can generate this experience that authors and scholars have felt for years was at the core of the major religions. So going back thousands of years, if we look at the foundation of some of the major traditions, uh, we see this mystical experience. Um, we also see it throughout time in poetry and in everyday people. There was a recent Pew study that showed uh, 49% of Americans report having some kind of peak or mystical experience. So we're worried for these experiences. I, I like to say we're worried for meaning. Um, and back in the first wave of the research, the results were, were compelling. But then due to the countercultural chaos of the 1960s and the political issues and some of the recreational use, these medicines were placed outside the hand, hands of research and of the public. And for 30 years or so, there was no research, which was quite remarkable. It was the first time ever and since that a therapeutic compound with promising benefits was taken out of the hand of, of uh, healthcare because of a social, uh, social cultural backlash. So the, uh, those foundational years are crucial. People like Albert Hoffman and uh, Gordon Wasson, who uh, brought mushrooms to the West, um, were, were part of those early days of writing about it, speaking about it, researching it. 
uh, and even people like Aldous Huxley, the great English literary writer, uh, was a proponent of using psychedelics uh, in treating existential end-of-life distress. So there's really a rich history that I invite people to look into. And we're just standing upon these shoulders of these great pioneers and continuing now in the current wave of research uh, its applications to a variety of clinical syndromes or disorders that um, I imagine we'll talk about today. Which are the drugs you're particularly interested in and um, that, that are kind of at the heart of your research right now? So the primary medicine that we're using now is psilocybin, which is the psychoactive ingredient or compound in mushrooms, a certain species of mushrooms that grow on the earth. Uh, people know the street name, you know, magic mushrooms. Um, and they've been used recreationally, obviously. But in these controlled settings, we synthesize the uh, the psilocybin, so the person hasn't taken the mushroom; they're taking the, the synthesized medicine. Um, and that's the primary uh, medicine we're using at UCLA, Johns Hopkins, and us at NYU, and in, in our clinical trials uh, that are FDA approved. Other trials are using MDMA, which is the street word ecstasy, but MDMA is the is the compound, and. Um, that's not a, psych- a classic psychedelic, uh, but it's known as an apathogen, and, and there are studies with that as well, with PTSD and other, other disorders. But the main classic hallucinogen, and that's a category that involves LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, um, we use psilocybin um, in America and, and some um, sites in the Europe as well. Right. So if you can, can you describe what psilocybin does to the brain? What do we know about the drug? What does it look like when, you know, if we could peer inside inside the brain cavity? Um, how, how do you describe that for us? So that's a great question. Um, there, there are really two uh, ways of looking at this. One, of course, is the neuroscience, is what you're asking about. And the other is the 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 experience itself. What is that experience about? Uh, so there's two avenues of inquiry. Um the phenomena itself, what is that, and the characteristics that, and, that I, I want to get into today, uh, then is the neuroscience. In terms of the neuroscience, we don't know a lot. Um, we've known for decades that it involves the neurochemical serotonin, so it works along serotonergic pathways. You know, we're just learning through fMRIs and various imaging what else might be happening within the brain. But it's, uh, but it's a bit of a mystery as to what's going on neuroscientifically beyond serotonin and something called the default mode network being uh, altered. Um, and, you know, th- that's ongoing. Um, uh, the, other, the other camp, the other avenue of inquiry is, is remarkable because that's trying to understand the phenomena itself. Uh, and it, it, it varies uh, on the person, on the set and setting. So when we do the research, uh, set is the, the mindset of the person, um, their history, their intention, why they're doing it, and setting is, is how it's done. And we, we've learned uh, over the years to have this very controlled and safe, interpersonally supported set and setting that fairly reliably uh, generates this mystical peak experience um, that I'll define in a few minutes. So, uh, but, but the neuroscience of it is still pretty much in the infancy. Yeah. Well, l- let's jump into what you're seeing and what and what defines the mystical experience, because I think this is ultimately the heart of what's going on. That is the heart. And um, it's the heart so much that we're finding in the studies that the more profound or the more uh, heightened the mystical experience as measured by uh, various measures, the better the clinical outcome, which mm-hmm. is remarkable. So what is it about this experience that's producing these greater clinical outcomes in people? Because uh, not all people have this mystical experience. There are roughly two-thirds of those taken that have that, that peak level. And when they do, in many of the studies, uh, we're finding the greater clinical outcome. I also want to point out it's really important to, to the listener that these medicines are taking once once or twice in some trials, but not every day. So it's really a paradigm shift in how we think of medicine. Most medicine people are taking today for the cholesterol, for their blood pressure, Prozac, whatever they're taking, they take every day to achieve the desired effect. This medicine is taken once or twice, but it's the memory of the profoundly altered state of consciousness, uh, and I'll describe it in a moment. Uh, it's that memory that recalibrates and reframes um, who they are. It provides insight into, into self, nature, in this case, even even death itself or consciousness. So the mystical experience is defined by a few criteria. One is a sense of unity. Uh, the person uh, under the uh, during the experience senses everything is connected. 
Uh, all people and things are interconnected. Again, language you find at the core of the major religions. Uh, the noetic quality, which is a, a term coined by William James, the sense that one is encountering ultimate reality. People, when they come out of the experience, after a few hours of, in the experience, will say that wasn't a drug effect. That was, that was reality. And it's very profound, uh, the authority that it, that it has. A sense of sacredness, love, humility, awe, a deeply felt positive mood. Ineffability is a core feature. It's hard to describe in language. It's, it's, it kind of transcends language, although they do a great job describing their experience. And what I find the most important, Jonathan, of, of subjective features is this of transcendence. The sense of transcending, and this sounds a bit far out, t time and space and, and the body as we know it, the sense of pulling the lens back and, and finding ourselves in a much larger panoramic field um, that can really recalibrate um, you know, how we view ourselves and, and life around us. Now, for a person who's dying of, of cancer or some other disorder and whose body will, will soon begin to fail and not function, the insight or the idea that they're connected to something more enduring, um, possibly outside biology in part, um, uh, is, profound, is a profound gift for them. So the sense of transcendence is a remarkable uh, part of the experience. Uh, and again, meaning-making and transcendence are also found in, in research on what does alleviate end-of-life distress um, without psychedelics. So we know meaning-making and transcendence are two important human qualities for, for mitigating uh, distress or suffering. And it turns out that provides the platform for the research, these medicines, and more importantly, the experiences um, provide those two meaning-making transcendent experiences, which have shown so far to be profoundly helpful in reducing distress and end-of-life care, and also some other um, applications. You know, it's so interesting um, just hearing these descriptions and thinking that, I mean, as we heard from Brian Murarescu, um, there's just this striking similarity in the characteristics of this experience that goes back thousands of years. And I think you, you also pointed that that type of a mystical experience is at the heart of a number of the major religions. That's the remarkable part, and, and Brian did a great, great job in his remarkable book. Um, I really enjoyed it. As a proud Greek-American, I enjoyed his journey through uh, ancient Greece. Um, you know, Aldous Huxley spoke about this as well as many others have. It's been called the perennial philosophy, or there's other names to describe it. But that at the core of the major religions or moral traditions might be this mystic core. Um, in the three Abrahamic and the three Eastern traditions, you see these mystical experiences spoken about. Um, and, and that is remarkable that they occurred naturally, of course, in, in many examples throughout time. And well, one of the remarkable implications for the research is that it might be a tool in understanding what is consciousness. So we don't know what, what that is. Um, there's no one really understands what, what is consciousness. Is it generated by our complex brain function? Or is there something more complex than that? Is it partially outside of maybe biology? Um, we don't know how it gets generated or what it is, where it is. And so there's also thought in terms of the research into consciousness, can these tools, can these experiences be helpful in understanding that? And that's just a remarkable um, notion that they, these may, they may be helpful in understanding what I think is the final frontier in science. What is consciousness? Yeah, those are some huge existential questions and really fascinating stuff. But if we keep this conversation just more at the clinical level right now, how are these psychedelics able to actually treat different ailments? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I'm going to begin with alcoholism and uh, end-of-life distress, going back to the early research. And now we've picked up with that in 2016, uh, Johns Hopkins, a team of Johns Hopkins and a team, our team at NYU, uh, published paper showing one, one dose, one session with psilocybin could profoundly reduce anxiety, depression, uh, and, and cancer patients, um, increase spiritual well-being, uh, decrease existential distress, which was a remarkable finding, and bo both sites had, had similar findings. Um, so... The, the, the goal here is how can this experience and these medicines, how do we find clinical applications? So one, of course, is end-of-life distress, palliative care. 
we don't die well in America. We're getting better at it. Uh, palliative care and hospice are cultivating a, a better um, an improved conversation with the public, or I should say the culture is accepting the conversation more. Uh, but we still it's, it's still the greatest taboo, right? We don't talk about death a lot. So we're getting better at it, but can we improve how we die possibly through these clinical applications? Other applications have been addiction, alcoholism, uh, eat, uh, eating disorders are being studied, smoking cessation. At Johns Hopkins, people who want to quit smoking tobacco had these experiences embedded within a short psychotherapeutic process and showed incredible results. So there are a variety of clinical disorders, and I think there are more coming, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And it, it seems these experiences uh, can recalibrate uh, those, those disorders. And aside from the mystical experience, there's other experiences people may have uh, one is kind of a biographical revisiting of of their life, kind of an autobiographical, uh, psychodynamically look in, introspection, where they revisit uh, conflicts during their life, and people come out with incredible language. Uh, things like I, I felt an incredible sense of forgiveness for those who have done harm to me, uh, even going back to childhood, or a self love towards loving kindness towards self or towards others. And I like to use the Greek word agape that many people speak of this broader, almost cosmic love that is kind of the ground, you know, the, the ground of being, to, to, to paraphrase Paul Tillich. Um, and when they connect with that, there's such a sense of relief and release. So, you know, some of the language we use and that I'm using now is, is kind of spiritual language you see in, in religions, but this is where the science has taken us. People are speaking this way about themselves and, and about then the, the impulse to either stop smoking or to recalibrate their depression and find relief. So it's it's remarkable, and, and I think there are many other clinical applications coming. Uh, and, and one of the great ones, again, I think, is uh, hopefully improving how we die um, in, in our country and throughout the world. Right, right. Do, do you think that, you know, we've been talking about psilocybin, but do you think that there will be similar findings with, with LSD? Is that also kind of happening uh, concurrently? So I think they will be similar. Uh, the studies in the, in, the, in the first wave, going back a half a century ago, were primarily with LSD and then a little bit with psilocybin as well. And yes, the results will be similar. It's a similar experience. The one difference, there's a few differences. The one major one is LSD is a much, has a much longer experience. So in other words, uh, it will last for many hours, um, uh, whereas psilocybin is a shorter experience. Uh, people come in the day of the... So, the way it works is people are, we meet with them for a few weeks to get to know them and prepare them for the experience and, and set a proper intention and, and get a life review and what they want from the experience. And the day of, of the session, they lay on a couch with headphones that plays about six hours of kind of background music, mostly classical or instrumental. They wear eye shades, and those are both provided to kind of encourage a going within, going into their internal experience to... Um, to the unfolding changes in consciousness. Uh, and by 5 p.m., the experience is over. Uh, it's about three hours of the peak experience, and then they go home. And there's a few weeks of follow-up and integration. LSD is a much longer experience, so it would require a much longer uh, day and even a, an overnight stay. So in that way, it's not as clinically um, man as manageable. And also, unfortunately, LSD has this cultural, you know, t t taboo about it because of the 60s. Um, and it synthesizes it's a man-made medicine where psilocybin is naturally found on the earth. So that also has this incredible history. Uh, and psilocybin has a strong history with indigenous cultures going back, we think, thousands of years. And again, Brian's book speaks about, you know, could these medicines or similar sacraments have been used in Western civilization as well as other indigenous cultures around the world. So um, the experience is similar. It's really the time frame, and one is natural, and one is uh, synthesized. What does the mainstream medical community think about this? Is, is it uh, being supported, or are there some mixed opinions on it? Well, we're very lucky. The FDA has supported, of course, all these trials. These are all FDA-approved clinical trials. So we're still in the clinical trial phase, um, which is we're grateful for. And in my field, the field of palliative care is very supportive of this. Uh, it takes a lot of education on our part. I understand how people may not understand what these medicines do, what psychedelics are, particularly given the history, given the 1960s and all the, the press and all the political and social cultural uh, chaos that went on. Sometimes 
messages came out of that that may not be so appropriate or, or really true. So, you know, our role, and it behooves us to educate the public and our, and our peers in, in medicine and healthcare um, what these medicines can do, what the experience can do, the safety, the efficacy. So that, that falls on our shoulders. And uh, through, of course, conferences and education and, and peer-reviewed research, and that's going well. That's going very well in terms of all these clinical applications. Um, but it takes education, Jonathan. Right. We have a lot to um, kind of recover from, from the way they were, they were portrayed for decades. Well, now joining us is Dinah Baser, someone who's actually worked with Tony in a clinical setting as a patient. And um, we're, we're excited to have you and to hear about your experiences. Dinah, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So I know you've been listening in here a little bit, and I wonder if you could tell us what brought you into the setting with Dr. Bossis and, and then uh, where the experience went from there. Okay, well, I had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, fortunately stage one. I'd had surgery and I went through chemo, and I thought when the chemo was done, I would feel great. We would celebrate, and uh, instead, I felt terrible, <laughs> and I was just consumed with anxiety about a recurrence. And, you know, I knew what the stats were, and it looked pretty good, but every time I had an exam coming up to see how I was doing, I became just so anxious, I just um, couldn't sleep, was eating all kinds of bad stuff, which is what I do when I'm anxious. Um, and so the nurse practitioner at one of my checkups asked me how I was doing, and I said, well, I'm fine, except for this terrible anxiety. And so she put me in touch with Tony's project. And that led you into an experience with him, and I wonder how you would describe it. What, what was the process like, also the set and setting, as we know that's so important here? Okay, well, um, they had set up a room for the whole experiment to take place in that was very beautiful, very restful, um, a sofa that was quite comfortable. There was artwork on the walls. There were bookcases with art books and uh, and other books. It was... It was a very peaceful setting altogether, and so I would go there. Uh, I think I was going twice a week to begin with because I came into the study rather late, and so I had to have a certain number of hours with Tony and with another therapist. And I looked forward to that. It was it was um, a very good thing to go there and speak with them and prepare for this experience. So what happened then as you, as you took the, the psilocybin? Well, um, I did a moment of silent meditation, and, and because I don't pray, and I took the capsule and sat down on the sofa, picked an art book to look at, and after a short while, things began to look a little different to me, and I said that, and Tony said, you know, maybe you should put on the headphones and the mask now and lie down. So I did, and the experience started. And it was, it was very rough at first. And Tony had described it as sometimes being like a rocket taking off and blasting off. And really, I was thrown into a very dark, frightening space where I had no, I had no connection. I was um, tossed about in the dark, and it was terrifying. And I, I finally, I guess I finally realized that Tony and Michelle were there, and I stuck my hand out of the blanket, <laughs> and I said, I'm so scared. And I think it was Tony who took my hand, and he said, just go with it. And um, I did. And I began to live in the music. And I think at the beginning it was a lot of um, Asian music, maybe Indian New Age, maybe, and I just kind of lived in the music and floated with it. And then, fairly soon, I just have no idea of time, really, but fairly soon, I saw my fear as a physical a black thing in my body, under my rib cage on the left side, nothing to do with the cancer. It was fear. It was, it was this fear that was consuming my life. And when I saw it there, I became so furious. Um, may I curse? May I tell you exactly what I said? I said, who, who do you think you are? Get the F out. I screamed it. And it's very hard to actually vocalize 
um, it was for me at least during this experience, but I think I did. I, I just was so overcome with anger. And once I did that, it disappeared. <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> uh, and it has never come back. I have never had that kind of fear come back that fear of the cancer, uh, that anxiety about the cancer. I, I've had a few episodes where I had some symptoms that I thought might be a recurrence, and I just went and got them checked out. I didn't have trouble sleeping. I didn't worry about it, really. It was just like, let's just make sure this is okay. And it was okay. But I, I really have not had any anxiety about it since then. And, and then the, the experience continued, again, with being in this river of music, and um, I don't know if you would call them hallucinations, but visual, visual effects, maybe like ornate oriental carpets. And, and then gradually I became enveloped in love. Just I, I've been an atheist since I was a teenager, and I, I would describe this as um, being bathed in God's love. It was amazing. It changed my life. I'm still an atheist. <laughs> if I'd had a sliver of belief in my body, I think I would have come out of that believing in something. But I don't, and I, and I didn't. But it was so... It, it's like viewing a rainbow that appears to be directly across the street from you, and you have to walk, to, walk towards it. It was, it was so convincing that had I been a believer at all, I would have been totally, totally in with it. Uh, being an atheist, I had to question it afterwards. I said to my daughter, who believes as I do, I said, but it wasn't real, was it? And she said, no. Um, I think what was real was the experience itself. That was real. So I did experience being bathed in God's love. You don't have to believe in any kind of God or supernatural power to feel that. And, and that changed my life afterwards. And I felt that right away. You know, I, I, I think this goes without saying, um, but this experience, it, it sounds like it was just unlike anything else that had ever happened to you before. I mean, this was truly a, an utterly unique experience that you went through um, in that situation. It was. I've experienced things that were close to it, but very briefly, you know, a brief moment standing looking out over the lake where we camp when all of a sudden I just dissolved into the universe. And, and then it's gone. That feeling is gone. Um, I've done some meditation retreats. I felt it there briefly. But this was sustained. And I, I, I kept feeling a lot of it for quite a while afterwards. And the anxiety that you experienced is still gone? The anxiety over the cancer, yes. I have plenty of new anxieties. <laughs> I think everyone does these days. Well, Dinah Bazer, thank you for sharing some of these experiences with us today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And Dr. Anthony Bossas of NYU, thank you for, for sharing some time with us today. We, we appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you've enjoyed this show, please consider donating during our Power and Numbers Drive. KCRW.com slash give or 1-800-600-KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll see you next week.